I try to focus on what I can control. And I can control how prepared I was. I can control what was in my data room. I can control how I followed up, how quickly I followed up. And, you know, you can always control whether I fit a box, whether they wanted to invest in me, whether they had money to invest in me even. And so there was a lot of learnings. There was a lot of learnings. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Samar Hernandez, the founding partner of Chingona Ventures, a firm that recently announced a $52 million fund. We dive into all facets of venture capital, her journey, and much, much more. Let's dive in. Samara, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> well, I guess we it's a back. different podcast now. But. Yes, if anyone's interested in the first time, it was Jessica O'Brien's <laughs> podcast. Uh, now we're in the Vitalize podcast, but we haven't talked. It's been like more than a year and a half. Yep. Uh, a lot has happened in the world of Chingona Ventures, uh, in your world. Let's start there. You raised a $52 million fund, which is amazing. Quite the step up from the $6 million fund one. Yeah. How did that come about? Was that your target? Like, did you know you want to go a much bigger fund? Like, I'm just curious about all that. Let's just start with that. I mean, look, start when I think about getting into venture seven, eight years ago now, and you would if you would have asked me when I was gonna raise my fund or tell, told me that I was gonna raise my own fund, I would have been like, You're nuts, right? I was just excited to just sit at the desk and talk to founders. And, uh, and so it's just been a ride with raising my first fund, which was six million, and then fund two, the target was actually twenty five. So I, unlike a lot of people out there, like in the market, I mean, I, I think undershot myself in that I didn't think I could even raise 25 million, right? I mean, like Soul GP, Latina in the Midwest, it, it, it's hard. It's hard for anybody. And, and there are people that raise, having zero venture experience, raise huge funds. But, um, you know, for me, I went off with that initial target of 25 million and I basically hit the majority of that in my first close within three months. And I was very fortunate for that. Had a lot of great uh, momentum in the market as well as interest in what we were building. And I wasn't new to VC, right? I had, I had been a part of Math Venture Partners two years for two funds prior to starting my own fund. Then I had a track record of my own fund. But um, I was very, very fortunate for the, all the interest from LPs. And we also decided to double our fund size because the market was cha just changing in a very different way that we hadn't anticipated. So what we modeled out was, uh, you know, $4 million valuation caps that we see, which were no longer relevant, right? I, I mean, I got three to five million at, at the, <laughs> when I first started my fund. And so they were going from 10 to 20 cap. And so for us to really... Be competitive uh, lead, which is what we focus on doing about a third of our deals. We needed to raise a, a bigger fund, and we were just in a very fortunate position where we had a lot of really great LPs that were interested. Um, so we, we did our final close in May, um, and so we had a fresh pool of capital, which is good in this environment. You know, we can talk through that a little bit, but uh, we we have there's a lot of opportunities in this market, so we are doubling down, and we're also expanding our team. So very, very excited for this fresh pool of capital. Very helpful uh, in many ways, obviously. Uh, I want to get into the team part eventually, but one thing I was curious about, because I think you had mentioned in uh, one of the news things I'd seen about the, the raise uh, with this bigger 
fund and what you wanted to do, you said you saw you said that you saw way more founders who needed lead checks at the early stages. They needed bigger checks. They needed lead checks to get the job done essentially for their for their raise. And why not? She gonna be that yeah. that fund to do it and doubling that fund size. Just take me through how you kind of think about this fund, the portfolio construction with mm-hmm. this check size differences from fund one. I'd love to hear more about like the logistics behind the fund. Yeah. So fund one, we had 27 investments in the fund, 6 million. Check size was 100 to 250,000. Um, and so what we proved in there is not only did founders want to take our checks, but we were able to lead some of those deals and preempt the rounds and join the boards. And look, founders, uh, a lot of the founders that we back, so so we don't only back women and minorities, but that's over 80% of our portfolio company CEOs and fund ones. Uh, a lot of these founders benefit from having a strong lead VC, can write the biggest check, can set the terms, can help institutionalize the company, get them to that next stage. And we didn't anticipate doing that necessarily, but we found that it really helped, uh, helped the company put them in a very different position and also de-risk our investment as well as investors, uh, downstream investors that did see it in Series A+. So when we went to raise our next one, we said, okay, well, we want to do that and continue to double down on pre-seed. You don't always need a lead at pre-seed, but it does help. And it does help when somebody comes in, can do the lead due diligence. And I get on a lot of calls with other angels or other pre-seed investors that are like, hey, we're going to write a quick, you know, small check or we're not going to lead, but you're going to join the board. You've done all the diligence. You know, can you share your diligence? Can you uh, help, help us think through this a little bit? And so, um, I found that it helps the companies and really it's, it's what I enjoy the most. Like it's, uh, you know, everyone says they're contrarian and whatever else, but, but, (laughs) you know, like I, I mean, I find these founders, we might've talked about in the last podcast, but there are in Lincoln, Nebraska that, uh, come from a, you know, Latino immigrant family with zero Ivy league education and have built something, um, but don't have a network, don't have the Ivy league school, uh, and and they don't even speak the VC lingo, right? And so how can we find these founders, get them in a good position to grow a venture-backed business, which is very different than, you know, kind of you know, non-venture-backed businesses. And so for me, it was just really, it's one, what I love to do, one I'm the most passionate about, and I find it very differentiating, especially being here in the Midwest. Um, there's been a lot of movement, a lot of incentives for you know, smaller funds and grants and all the, you know, that could write 50, 100K checks. But it, it really does make a difference when you raise larger rounds, if if that's what the, you need to do. Now, there's the, as you know, there's a lot uh, in the last few years that have, people have raised large rounds of high valuations and because they could. But I think that has changed. Um, but in general, I would say that founders, especially founders, minority and women founders, haven't, you know, race a ton and spend like crazy and having a, a larger round many times puts them in a good position to grow and scale their business buys them time more importantly to do that and so that's what we wanted to do and then also really grow out our team so that uh, we can help our portfolio companies with anything that they needed but also assess a lot of the new deals that we're coming in. Take me through that piece of it, the team building side of it for Chingona because Going from a $6 million fund, management fees on that versus $52 million is obviously a much bigger difference. And like when we had chatted last time, 
you had a plethora of Kellogg interns, I believe, yes. who were helping you along the way. And I remember seeing a picture of you meeting them in, in, in real life, which is amazing. Uh, now that you have a bit more capital, I saw that you were hiring, or I don't know if you still are, a uh, platform operations analyst, I believe the name was. Uh, how are you thinking about building your team now that you have a bit more capital and where you want to go, how you want to uh, build this with Choose on Adventures? Yeah, I mean, look, fun one, it was just me. I barely paid myself anything, and uh, I did have a bunch of interns, which was I'm very grateful for, and I still do. I love Kellogg interns, uh, MBA interns, that they're the best. We actually had a booth intern as well. Uh, but, you know, I went through the program, and I saw how that benefited my career, and I went through it wow, eight, eight, nine years ago now. And so I want to do that. And the goal out of the program is after 10 weeks to say, hey, you know, do you want to do you want to be in D.C. or do you hate D.C.? And that's both of those are good for me. I, actually, right before this, I spoke to a former colleague intern of mine that worked with me uh, four or five years ago. And you know, I've been a reference call for him. And so it's really great. And, and, and we have a wide diversity of backgrounds um, that join us. And so the perspectives that we have are, are great. Um, so we hired a, a, at the time, senior analyst in December. She was just promoted to associate. She's done fantastic. Um, so nice. very, very exciting. Nice. Rocio, you guys should follow her on Twitter if you hear this. Um, <laughs> but she's incredible. And um, you know, we, what the way I think about it is, I like to hire, make sure that person is onboarded, make sure they're in a good position before them bringing on somebody else, right? And so, and look, even with a fifty million dollar fund, I don't think we need a huge, huge team, right? It's not like we're having you know, millions and millions of in, in management fees. Right. So we, every person does everything really, right? Um, so so for me, that's what I did when I started at my last fund. It helped me understand the business as a whole. So not only doing diligence with founders, sourcing deals, but also how does a fund work? How do I think about cash management? How do you think about the construction? How do you think about helping companies and thinking through exits or partial exits? And so uh, that allowed me to do that on my last fund, and then allowed me to really understand how to build my fund. And so I think that everyone coming in should should do that. Uh, so we are now, I think, you know, Rosie is up and running, and so now we're hiring a, a platform and operations person. The challenge with that is we are getting a lot of inbound for people that want to be investors. Of course. <laughs> uh, so as you can imagine, so, so we're kind of trying to assess it in a different way um, because – we don't want somebody to just be kind of a separate side of the house and always want to be an investor because our focus is on investing. Um, but we want somebody that it comes in early and does some of the, the marketing operations, which Rosie and I are doing ourselves, and um, really help build that out while they're learning from the investing side. So we're, we're, we're thinking through that a little bit more. But anybody that's listening, if you have zero to three years out of undergrad, uh, have a great attitude, can do some Excel likes to write, can do some marketing, come in, and hopefully you're in Chicago. Uh, we'd love to talk to you. Okay, I wanted to have a little bit deeper on that because I remember being at the VC Platform Summit, Global Summit in New York City, and I was talking to all these different platform people there, and everyone's role was different. Every, like, it's mm -hmm. like, it seemed like every single person's role was different. Some people were like, super high on the talent side, like only talent acquisition. Some people are on the marketing, some people are supporting portfolio companies and like, there's so many different ways you can go about having a platform in VC and obviously the fund size would dictate a lot of that in terms of how big you have it. You have like a Jason Horowitz strategy, much different from many other funds. For you, you mentioned a little bit already about this position. I want to just say a little bit deeper on that. What are the things you really care about the most from a platform person at a $52 million fund 
I'm just curious about that. You, you bring up an excellent point, and it was really hard to write the job description. And I actually talked to a lot of other GPs about this. You're absolutely right. The platform role is different everywhere. And it's interesting. So I joined Kaufman since we last spoke, and we had this conversation um, with someone that raised a, I believe it was $450 million fund. And part of their, core, or their basically the whole core strategy is a services piece. And he said, you know, to really do this right, you really have to invest a lot of your management fee into this and not just have this as kind of a side thing. And it made me really think through that because you're right. Because, like, if if this is something that is a smaller piece of the business and it's not the core focus, then anybody coming in is basically not going to feel right about their role or, or their career opportunity or anything else. And so it made me really think about it because what we really need is someone to, to help us with operations stuff. So we collect a lot of data from our portfolio companies. We report it out. We collect um, uh, information from our LPs and, and data things coming in. But we also haven't even spent any time on marketing. I literally have not been intentional about marketing. And it's great that we build a brand so far of literally nothing. I've yeah. never been intentional about it, right? <laughs> our, our, my LP at one was like, you got to hire somebody. you got to you know, really think through it. And it's not yeah. the most active on Twitter or anything else, but I've been fortunate to really build out the brand um, that way. And we need to be intentional about that. So that was one piece of it. The second piece was with our portfolio companies. So we have now 27 in fund one, we have nine in fund two, so we have 36 total, and we're building out, we're investing in probably you know, 31 more companies. So we're going to have a lot of companies, and, and we make money off of basically investing in our portfolio companies. If they do well, we do well. So there's a lot of needs around hiring, around fundraising, around even sales that I have done just myself. And so yeah. we've brought on two senior advisors that have helped with that, but can we bring on, um, and, and, and we've been fortunate that our LPs, 20% uh, of them are basically banks that are really interested in a fintech platform and that want to support our companies and that want to make connections. So I've been making those manual connections myself, but can I really build it out on the platform side and say, all right, what do these companies need? What are they asking for? What is the stage? Who's in our network? And how do we how are we intentional about that? Now, is that a whole you know full-time role at this stage? No. So that's why we, yeah. we have this platform, we have that as operation. Um, so it's a it's a tough role to hire in full transparency. You know, it's not as easy as like an investor analyst role yeah. or associate role or whatever, you know, or principal. But uh, it's something that I, I want to be very intentional about because I do realize that going into VC, um, everyone knows, you know, GP to partners at firms are not great at mentoring and, and managing and, and all that. It's, <laughs> it's like an, not a secret, right, in the space. And so I do want to be very intentional about every single person we hire, what their role is here, do they feel motivated, is there an opportunity for growth based on both what they're looking for as well as our needs, and those have to align. And so that's why we're, we're kind of thinking through this a little bit of like, hey, you know, we absolutely need platform and operation support first and foremost, that's where it's getting strained right now, but can we then kind of develop this, this next investor if that's what they choose to do? Oh, that's so fascinating to hear how you're thinking through it. I think about even Vic on our team was leading the platform side of things and how he helps facilitate connections and tracking that with yes. our portfolio. And then I'm thinking about, okay, like on my end too, just thinking, okay, we have these different assets of like a newsletter, a podcast, uh, Twitter followings, whatever. How do we leverage those to help the companies mm -hmm. uh, we're obviously having our portfolio, but also then portray that to the everyone else. So we can obviously have every 
founder and our th- fits our thesis come to us and know who we are. That's like the goal. If you miss out, you're always thinking about that. It's impossible, right? But you're thinking about that exactly. constantly. And how, and how do founders find us? You know, like, again, I think we've just not been intentional about it. But one thing that is really important to me that I've thought a lot about is this authentic piece of it. Um, if you're naturally good at, at Twitter, for instance, like Gail became, you know, this incredible influencer on, on Twitter. Crushing over the pandemic. it. She's crushing it. And <laughs> we've talked a lot about that, right? Like, and I've talked to another GP investor that today that is has zero Twitter presence. And she's has a bunch of unicorns as well, right? And so... There's not a right path necessarily, but what's authentic to you. And so for me, sometimes getting on Twitter too much is like I need a mental health break, right? With with sometimes <laughs> like the things yes. going on and people fighting and, and all the things. But um, I do know it's important too because that's how we found one of our best performing companies. That's how we find LPs. And so finding that balance. And um, one last thing I'm going to say about that is that Jimena here, uh, one of my friends in Chicago. She was a part of the, the Biden um, campaign. She was part of like, the Lori Lightfoot's campaign and building the digital infrastructure. So she's a good friend. She's offered to kind of build that out. So so more to come on that. Uh, but I, I, in the end of the day, I'm trying to be very intentional and very authentic about our brand as well as our team building. Yeah, and on that note too, I think about with any emerging manager and then especially whether women, Black, Latino, like to have your voices elevated it does matter though, it's different than like a white male GP, for instance, not being on Twitter and then find deal for whatever. Because for the other people who are entrepreneurs and founders out there to find people like them that will invest in them, like if they're not visible, they're never even going to see that. They don't see that it's possible. Our spying VCs don't see that's possible. So at least for me personally, I've always thought of it that way when like we're on Twitter, we're promoting Gail stuff on Twitter, I'm doing more on Twitter. It's that we could do like minimal, obviously. But the more we can do, it also helps inspire those other people potentially to, oh, even ask, what is VC? What is angel investing? Wait, I could start a startup. I have this idea. I know this thing. This is a problem I have. And that, for me, seeing the visibility of that is how I think it's been helpful, at least as a firm, in terms of then impacting and having real conversations with people. And you mentioned one of your best performing companies came to Twitter, and I wanted to talk about them. And I believe it's Career Karma, if I'm correct. <laughs> yes. So, so I did a lot of research uh, going back into the, the archive here. So, tell me how you met Ruben and Career Karma. Yeah. So on Twitter, he reached out to me cold on Twitter, um, and uh, so he was part of YC. He was in San Francisco, right? And this was pre the racial equity movement and all that. And he, it wasn't like it was easy for him, right, to, to release. Uh, yeah. even with the network, even going through one of the top accelerators. Uh, and he just reached out cold on Twitter. Um, and that's why I, you know, as much as sometimes I want to get off or, or not be on or be on, like, I know that this is how founders find us. And so yeah. he reached out cold. And then I got a reintroduction from Carolina, uh, who used to be at Cape Horror. Now she's a, a partner at um, First Close, who's also not in the fund. But they had invested. And, and with Ruben, it's interesting, he's got this, this, amazing background where he uh and it's all like his network and he was a former investment banker he plays the cello he's amazing at it and yeah. one of the things that i really liked he was basically my first or second investment one, is his ability to do something with very little and find early validation that people want the product so one thing that you know, we're super early with pre-seed investors and so sometimes they have a product sometimes they have traction, but you should not. And so we yeah. look for other forms of traction. And for him, 
you basically build a podcast and a community of people that were looking to get into tech. And he was able to personally do it himself. Uh, and so he started helping uh, people just get into boot camps. And what he realized was that 70% of all uh, applicants to boot camps get rejected. And this is bad business for boot camps as well because they have to do a lot of marketing. And if they get better lead gen, then they're yeah. obviously willing to pay for it. And then for, for on the other side, for consumers, they want to increase their pay and they are looking for these boot camps, but they may not know how to apply or, or how to prepare or all that. And so he did this fast track program early on, so for 30 days, told people exactly what to do, created a community of support. And then uh, for every qualified lead that he brought to the boot camps, they would pay him a percentage of the, the tuition. And so that's how we started when we first invested. Now, some people said, well, maybe you know, it wasn't scalable, a big venture opportunity, it was a tech behind it, all that. But he showed very early on that, that he did something better than anybody else and that both sides of the market were willing to pay for it and they were desperate for it. And then just, you know, on top of that, it, a lot of the people that use his platform were women and women of color, really single, single moms, a lot of them, because they wanted to increase their pay to help you know, support for their family. And so, and I, and I went to this, uh, their, their office, which was in San Francisco, they had like a one bedroom or two bedroom, whatever office apartment. And uh, I've been there, by the way. Oh, you've been there. Yeah, yeah. So you know exactly what it is. It's just an apartment. <laughs> and he would be like, we'd get on a call and be like, all right, I got to get on this, this, you know, um, this training or whatever. And so he got on and then you would see people just so excited to, he would just pump everybody up, create community, they would support each other. You would see them support each other on Twitter. And so there wasn't a lot there when I invested in terms of, you know, revenue or product builder or whatever, but I saw firsthand that he was able to show that people wanted to use his product, that it was being successful, even if it was a manual transaction, you know, and then people were willing to pay for this. And he was always super scrappy with his, with his funding, even when COVID hit and, and boot camps uh, delayed the people coming in to, to get treatment boot camps that delayed the revenue. And he was always able to cut down a little bit on the marketing um, continue to grow, and then when he started getting paid again, he was able to turn it on again. He had the profitability during COVID, uh, but then he was able to raise the Series A and Series B. And even in the Series B, he wrote his own investment memo, which I've never seen done before, uh, for for investors, right, that had, like, questions on the market, questions on the product, questions on the team, and that probably goes into his investment banking background. But he is one of, I mean, a lot of people know him, but he's one of the most humble people, well-connected really smart, really, you know, just a good human being out of this world, just extraordinary human being. So uh, I was very fortunate to back Ruben first and foremost and, and the founders on his team, but also what they were building. And um, yeah, he's, he's been a great, a great uh, investment. And, and he reached out to me and pulled up Twitter. That is an insane story. Um, I have known about them for a very long time when they first had the podcast, Breaking Into Startups. And then I'd interviewed his co-founder and then I was happened to be in SF right when they were doing YC. So I remember going to that apartment you mentioned and yes, seeing yes. the whiteboard they had about like their metrics and stuff. I'm like, yes. so you guys are going through it right now? Like, yeah, it's crazy. And I was just like, this is wild. And then after that, have interviewed Ruben twice then yes. and I've seen their progression just every single time. And going back to one of the things you mentioned, Ruben was saying he had built up this network and he thought like, oh yeah, I got all these people riding with me already. Like, this fundraising thing is going to be easy. 
And a lot of them didn't invest or they didn't invest right away. And he was just like mm-hmm. floored by that. Just like, wait, what? Like, I thought we were already like, you knew it was just like locked down. And that just shows just how hard it can be to raise. Even when you think you have people in your corner, you still have to hustle and make it happen, which yeah. I will always praise uh, Ruben for making it happen and the work he's put in to do that. And he just evangelizes everything they're doing, which I think is exciting. And just people, a model for people to follow. Any founders, check out Ruben Harris. He's incredible, by the way. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I would bet him, you know, obviously I did bet, bet him any day, but I'm so yeah. what he's doing and ultimately, you know, the next stage of his business. Yeah. And one thing that we, I realized I kind of glossed over, uh, we mentioned the fund and raising 50 million, but we don't really mentioned that process and how that was for you. Any differences or anything like that. And for any other emerging managers, I think it's a disservice to not ask about it. So how was fund two raising that compared to fund one? I, we have to dive a little bit deeper into that because I realized we can't gloss over yeah. it. Yeah. No, I appreciate you asking that. And like fund one um, was a total of 18 months. It was a sole LP. It was an institutional, which was unique for the time. Yeah. And I raised it. I started thinking about it really in 2017, 20, 2018 is when I really I started it. And look, this was before a lot of recent movements. A lot. I mean, now I think yeah. everyone's raising a fund. But especially in Chicago, right? There wasn't that. And look, I had two years. I had you know over a decade of Goldman Sachs experience. I had a two, been a part of two funds. Uh, I had some sort of you know investing track record, and it's hard. It's really hard. And and um, I was very fortunate that like I went out to just start an angel group because I felt like there's no way I'm gonna be able to raise a fund. I don't have a high net worth. I don't have all this all the things. And I had seen the people that do raise sole GP funds early, like have family money. So they use that yeah. and then they, they make investments and then they raise. I don't, I don't have that money. And so I uh, was fortunate. I went to my, my now eager LP and I said, Hey, I'm looking to invest in this, create this angel group. I have all this deal flow. I have provided advice over the years to these founders, but they're not getting back. They don't need any more advice. They need capital. And so he goes, well, I'm actually looking to invest in something like this, right? Because because they're uh, institutional. They had invested in kind of traditional institutional types of investments. And um, it took a while because it was new. And so it was not only just me, but it was somebody else. A big, interesting enough, a white man in the middle part of Illinois, which was differentiating, right? Because they were yeah. focused on different types of businesses. So it's not just about race and gender, but it's really about location and, and, and thesis. And so I was fortunate to have him back me in, in fund one, and I was able to prove it out with 27 investments. So Karma is one of them, but we have many others as well. And then for fund two, I wasn't actually starting to raise. It was the summer of 2020. There was a lot going on with a lot of the, the racial ethnic movements and the unfortunate um, incident with George Floyd, and, and people were just like questioning the infrastructure of a lot of different industries, but particularly the venture capital. And so, um, PayPal had announced this big initiative with investing in black and brown communities. And so I had connected with um, Mario Ruiz, who was formerly there. And it was a seamless process, right? It was something where I, I and when I, why I say that is because there are a lot of movements and there's a lot of funded funds, but for black and brown managers, um, but it's not always easy to get a hold of them. It's kind of all over the place. And I've personally experienced that as well. And so... Yeah. It was, a, I'm very fortunate, it was, a, it was a process where they were very transparent in the beginning. There was an online form where anybody can apply. You didn't need to know anybody on your team. 
And they were my first check. They were my first commitment mm-hmm. card too. And that's what kickstarted the race. So then my April fee for fund one came in and increased their check. And then um, that led to another LP and another LP. So, so I was able to, again, this was years in the making. Of course. And pre-COVID, I had built these relationships over time. But that allowed me to really get a good, strong anchor uh, investor base that was pretty much all institutional. It was actually all institutional. Sorry, there was maybe two individuals, but really all institutional for my yeah. 8% of my fund target. And then um, it was a lot of, of you know, the whole meeting investors and attending events. And it was all through Zoom, which was hard in itself. But, you know, everyone kind of sees the end result. And I'm like, oh, you're so great. You raised. And they kind of. I don't know if they assume it's easier. And, and some people in the GPs that I've talked to, like, highly, oh, we raised so fast, we raised this much. I mean, it's, it's, it's never easy for um, fundraising. I would say for people of color in particular, for women of color in particular, it is never easy. And you see a lot of, of these fund managers who have track records, who have raised funds before, who, and it's very hard to raise, right? And so, um, it was it was definitely challenging. I think you know it took a toll on me more personally versus professionally, right? Like there's always something that takes a toll. So so professionally, I was just like spending all my days fundraising and still deploying out fund one and trying to manage and trying to hire. Um, so you know, health wise, I probably wasn't and, and trying to take care of a three year old during COVID, right? Just like, gonna say, like, yep, <laughs> three year old as well, right? So. <laughs> That I mean, I guess it was 18 months before the COVID started, but like it, it, it was freaking crazy. And I remember one LP in particular, my son was screaming because he was supposed to be taking a nap. He was screaming when I was pitching that LP, and I'm just like, okay, do I just let him cry and continue this? Do I pick him up and bring him into this meeting? What are they gonna like? So I just picked him up and brought him to the meeting, and then they they ended up investing. So I was very fortunate that I had patient LPs, right? Um, but yeah, I, we were able to thankfully close. And uh, look, I get a lot of questions around like, how did you raise and all that. I'm still, I still think like, obviously, there's so much to prove. Raising is raising, just like with startups, you actually need to prove it, and that's your choice, yeah. and that's all that. But um, I will say that. I, I try to focus on what I can control. And what is that? That's, I can control how prepared I was. I can control what was in my data room. I can control how I followed up, how quickly I followed up. And, and you know, I can't, I can't always control whether I fit a box, whether I, um, whether they wanted to invest in me, whether they had money to invest in me even. And yeah. so there was a lot of learnings. There was a lot of learnings of qualifying LPs. There was a lot of learnings of like, Hey, you know what? If you're not interested in a soul GP, this is not going to be a fit. Like I can't, you know, I can't promise that I'm going to bring on a partner. And I had a lot of great people help me with that, that conversation. And then there were some that, that just wanted me to invest in women and minorities. And, and, and um, those were not a fit necessarily, but, but then there was ones that just loved it. They loved that we were in the Midwest. They loved that I was soul GP. They loved um, that we were investing in all different types of founders. It just so happened that we had great diversity in our, in our portfolio. And those were, you know, that was, those are the people I focused on and, and I'm very grateful for. And so there's still a lot to prove. Um, but, you know, one thing you touched on before on, on representation, which I, I think was a great point, that especially minorities, um, there's not a lot of us. And 
I, I was just like head down focus on raising. I was just head down focusing on investing. And I still, you know, many times am. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the Henri from um, Harlem and, and Jared were like, I think you're the, the largest soldier you left in the fund that raised because they collect data on everything. And I was like, what? Yeah. And it was, <laughs> that's pretty insane, you know? Like yes, to, yes. I, and um, and I just kind of like, I'm, I'm someone that doesn't celebrate. I just kind of like go, like literally I closed the fund announcement was on Saturday and Monday I was taking from three LP meetings. And, uh, <laughs> and what I've, what I've, uh, I'm very grateful for the support we found in the community. I'm very grateful for the announcement and all the people that came together and, and now executing on it. But I think it is important to recognize that and to recognize that celebration, but also the, hopefully the opening doors for more, especially women of color that are raising their own funds, that have had a lot of, you know, the, a, a tough time raising. And, and I'm in conversations with many of them. We're trying to help each other out over text messages. We're trying to invest in each other's funds. Um, and it, it's 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 hard because, you know, a lot of people reach out to you, like, I want to get to VC, I want to start my own fund. And, and you have that plus you're trying to manage everything else. So I, I am still trying to manage that piece of it, of, of wanting to help the next generation kind of come through while still learning myself and trying to figure it out myself. Um, and I've had some great people that have helped me, right, pull this out. And I I have to say, which I think a lot of people might say, but Charles Hudson from, from Precursor, mm. incredible mentor. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, like he's, he's the original sole GP. He broke a lot of doors for a lot of people. And so yeah. many others in the industry that have looked up to Miriam from Ulu, you know, and so I, um, I think we all, you're right, representation as much as we can while we're building our firms, but also making sure we manage our, our, our personal time. And so one of the things that I've done recently, I uh, never, you know, pause, I never pause and I'm forcing myself to really like, just, okay, spend a few hours or, or vacation or actually just. You know, and, and by the way, my body just is that natural. Like, I just can't look at the screen right now. Just, just takes time <laughs> to just really yep. focus on on a lot of the important things. So, like my son and and watching him grow, and I haven't prioritized my health. So I'm starting to prioritize my health. Uh, prioritize making sure my people on my team do that as well um, by, by by leading that, and then uh, forcing them to take vacation, uh, <laughs> which I never did. Um, and then really just um, also with, with our companies in the portfolio. I just had this conversation actually with with Gail at uh, Vitalize around she I think she mentioned or she like said had in the calendar she's gonna be out for a week yeah. coming up soon and I was like yeah I saw you're gonna be out for a week I just want to say I'm glad to see it because you deserve a vacation and she was yeah. like yeah I definitely would like it uh, sometime off which would be great uh, I also can tell uh, going back on like your Twitter older if you go back a few months I can tell you are deep into fundraising because your cadence oh. of tweets is totally different and I noticed it right away and I was like she's that time had to be when she was fundraising because it was just like maybe retweet once in a while since she go to ventures tweets. And I was like, I can tell I've, I've seen enough of them see that you just get so busy that you can't really think of anything else. Uh, so yeah. just a reality of what happens. And yeah. two things I want to get to one being coffin trials, which you mentioned, uh, how was that experience? Why did you decide to, to do that? Cause I know people have heard about it. Um, some people have applied or curious about it. Take me through that for you. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you noticed that piece of it on Twitter because I just, uh, I basically said no to everything. If it wasn't an LP, or I, noticed. Like, <laughs> I was like, no, and, 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 you, and have it, you have to have that. Yeah. And I felt bad for, for a lot of it, but at the same time, like if I don't raise, I can't do all this other stuff. 
Uh, so glad you noticed that. But um, Kaufman Fellows, so one of my investors, Jason Green, who's the founder of Emergence Capital, he was on the board of Kaufman. He actually was the one that reintroduced it to me. So I had known about Kaufman and I had thought about doing it a few years ago. And I had talked to Jeff, the CEO. And, um, you know, I wasn't sure if it was the right place for at this stage of my career. So I was actually, you know, joined last year. So I was in the height of fundraising. And I was like, are there enough kind of GPs raising funds? You know, I, I hadn't. And then also I was curious about the diversity of, of it, like, right, all the things. And it's an expensive program. So um, there's been a lot of conversations on Twitter, I know, about the program and all that. But all in all, what I will say is that I'm very, very fortunate going through it and it's not necessarily like you know what is VC that you learn or anything it's more about and you definitely get great conversations with Mike Maples for instance you know two weeks yeah. ago on, on curricular construction and how he thinks about investments and and all these different you know industry uh, leaders that have been around for a long time kind of highlighting that so I'm, I'm very fortunate but but the thing you know our class is so tight and my forum is so close and we talk to, to each other all the time and we've all experienced life changes, professional and personal, and very, very deep conversations that we have. And I'm so grateful to have that, especially going through COVID and through this environment and through fundraising, and, and we're able to help each other and man each other. We're all at different points, right, in our either our fundraising cycles and our professional career. But um, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to get closer with you know, Sean Nundy at Concrete Rose and and this year um, at, at Zeal Capital, we're hmm. even closer. And and Matt from, from Rare Breed, uh, Sydney from Precursor, Ernest Webb from, uh, from Great Point, and so, uh, and, uh, so many other people that I've met for the first time. So I'm pretty grateful for that. And, and one note on that, Sydney, soon to have her own fund, by the way. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I saw recently on Twitter she announced, which is very exciting as well. You've got to have um, her own too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would love to. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of the last things I'm curious about, because uh, I know on the first time we had a podcast, mentioned the craziness of your schedule. Uh, you just mentioned it here as well. Is there any question that you get that we haven't discussed yet that we could just ask you now, and then you can just shout that out when people ask you this question? Like, hey, just listen to Vitalize Podcast. I just wonder if there's anything else we haven't discussed that we have. But anything else you get questions on frequently that we can answer here to save you time for later? Uh, no, well, one, I, I love that and appreciate that because sometimes I just say like, hey, this is the podcast if you want to hear the story in the background. <laughs> uh, no, you know, I just, I don't, I think more recently I've gotten a lot of the questions around how do you feel being a leader? How did you decide to become a leader? Or I don't know why I've been getting a lot of that question. And it's interesting because I don't think about it or I don't think of myself as a leader. Or I just kind of, I'm just going. You're doing and, things. Yeah. And doing things, I think, um, you know, I think earlier in my career, I looked at people as leaders. I looked at people. I put them on a different, not not pedestal, but like kind of certain place, right? And then yeah. for me, uh, the way I think about it's it's not necessarily being a leader; it's just doing. Like I like I didn't like. Well, how did you know how to start your own fund? How did you? And it's just like I just did. I just didn't see anything in the market, so I just didn't, didn't have any other choice. I didn't know how I was going to do it. There was certainly no market tailwinds at the time to to yeah. for this. Uh, I just did it enough and told enough people and just spent my every free moment I had outside of my quarterly work doing this. And it was first and foremost because I wanted to and I enjoyed it. Uh, because if you're trying to, to be an investor or a VC and you don't actually enjoy it, right? You're not every day on the weekends at night 
everybody can like learning about I'm just I'm obsessed with it. Like even my, my husband says like every party we go to every like you're constantly asking me like what they're doing, like they're starting <laughs> you know, they're pitching you. And it's like, no, no, I just I just love what I do. I truly, truly do. And yeah. I'm very fortunate that I'm able to do this and uh, you know, be in a position where I can work with founders every single day and learn about these new technologies and be in a position to raise capital to be able to then invest in, in founders. And so um well, all that together is just like <laughs> being a leader. I don't think of myself as a, it's not that you go and be like a leader or CEO or whatever. It's just like doing what you're super yeah. passionate about. And against all odds, even if you don't see anybody in that position, just going after it. And I think, you know, maybe it's the universe coming together and giving me that opportunity. You know, to that point, as we wrap up, I always think about this and seeing what you've done, seeing like you mentioned Mac Conwell, seeing what Gail's done, everything too. I always just think of it in my head and I see the passion and everything with what you all want to accomplish. Uh, and it's just a matter of like, what's the alternative? Like, you know what you want to do. So you yeah. just do it. Like, you know what I mean? I think sometimes people wonder like, oh, like, how do I convince myself? But like, no, it's like, if you want it, you just do it because what's the alternative? Not doing it. Like Mac taking a thousand plus meetings. It's like, well, he wanted to raise a fund. What's the alternative? Not raising a fund. So he's not going to do that. So he's going to keep taking meetings. It's like, it becomes so simple when you realize that you're just so focused on this thing is that's what you want to do. And I love the passion that all of you have for that. And it's, uh, it's yeah. exciting to be part of it. And look, and especially in, in minority communities, I will highlight this, that, that yeah. people coming from, especially the women communities that I did, they came from, it's like the risk is very different. Like if there's no cushion, you have to pay for it. <laughs> you have to, right. Yeah. And so I think that is, but when you, I talked to a lot of women of color and community of color where it's like, you have to assess the risk in a very different way. The perceived risk, right, is one thing. Yeah. But when you actually think about it, it's like I gave myself a timeline of, you know, X amount of time, two years. Talked yep. about it with my husband, like, we're going to be making 70K together or, or less than that. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know. And, yeah. and, and can we, can I try this? And what's worse going to happen? I fail and uh, whatever fail it means. But then can I get a job if I want? Yes, I can get a job. But is it a job I want? Yeah. Not necessarily. So I think about it. Yeah, no, I love that. That's amazing. What's the best place for people to reach out to you, connect with Chingona Ventures as well? Yeah, so any founder that wants to tell us about our business, the best thing to do, go on our website, Chingona Ventures, Chingona.Ventures, and there's a submit page. Submit your business there. Um, it'll You can click on our process. It literally highlights our entire process on there, every question we're going to ask you, all the deals we're interested in. You can send me an email, but I'll just direct you there. It helps us streamline all the interviews we get per day. Yeah. Um, and then send me a DM on, on Twitter if there's something specific or just tag me on something. Uh, again, I'm not as as involved on Twitter, maybe Gail or you, but but uh, I do try to check that. And uh, I always appreciate the, the messages. Awesome. Thank you so much, Samara, for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to Vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at VitalizeVC, or you can follow me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.